Welcome into another edition of the Hops and Spirits podcast. And this week, it's a dual episode where we talk both hops and spirits here in a little bit. We'll talk cocktails with Jake Solik, um, beverage director from West Main Crafting Co. in downtown Lexington, Kentucky. But before we get to, to that and our current guest that you can see on screen if you're watching, don't forget to check us out on all of our social media at Hops Spirits, all one word on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You can find us on YouTube, link in our bio, or go to hopspirits.com to find all the great things uh, that we got going on there, including our brand new Friday 5 Q&A. We're giving to try highlights, cocktail cookies, and so much more. But we're here to talk beer right now. Spirits are a little bit later. And we have, once again, Kevin Patterson, a Cicerone National Beer Judge. He's also the manager of the Beer Trap Craft Beer Store and Bar in Lexington. Kevin, thanks for coming back. Well, thank you, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be back. Well, you know... About a year ago, we were talking fall beers, and it's crazy to think a year has come and gone, especially with the pandemic and everything going on. But we're here once again to talk fall beers, and I feel like this is where things start to change in the world of beer, because uh, just like uh, I'll talk to later with Jake about how ingredients change, it's kind of how it works for, for beer, um, and also temperature-wise, but what can people expect for fall beers? Well, first of all, it's hard to believe it's been a year since we've talked about the last time can you believe the last time we were actually in the middle of a pandemic oh wait we're still in the middle of a pandemic it's um, like groundhog day <laughs> <laughs> again um but that hasn't stopped people from coming out and, and, and enjoying the beers and as people then get vaccinated they seem to be more free uh to navigate to come in and uh be more adventurous i think people this year are much more adventurous in drinking than they were last year i think last year we talked about how people wanted something more comfortable they're going back reliable brands uh brands that are more easy drinking well they're back into the pastry stouts and the smoothie sours now so that's what's been the trend uh, in the last you know, few months but you're starting to see a shift uh, and that shift starts right around the end of july that's whenever both oktoberfest roll around and people are kind of excited about oktoberfest but they also see pumpkin ales and pumpkin ales are oh my god it's it's earlier and earlier every year and i know when we put in orders for pumpkin ales in the middle of summer you expect them to come soon, but when they finally arrive, they're like, oh, wow, it, it just seems earlier every year. But it's the same time frame. For 11 years of working at the Beer Trap, they've come in at the exact same weeks. That's the uh, last week or two of July. And so it's really taking people back. And it has me, too. It never gets old. It's always a shock. Um, I think people are looking forward to something a little bit more multi. You know, as kids are back in school, the patterns are shifting, the weather's not cooperating, it's still hot. Mm -hmm. But people are really likely to get into the Oktoberfest. And it seems like the brand of Oktoberfest that drink a little bit more lager-like are the ones that's hotter, the ones like Hofbrau Oktoberfest. Uh, they've been flying off the shelves. The more multi Oktoberfest, which is a little bit more of the traditional ones, um, people are slowly getting into those, but not like the more lager-like ones. And so those are actually picking up steam across the board pretty well right now. Um, pumpkin ales, still a slow mover. But I tell people, don't sleep on pumpkin ales. You're going to want one or maybe a six-pack that final week leading up to Halloween, and they're not going to be there. Your favorite ones are going to be gone. They may all be gone completely because what happens is there's that one cold snap. And when that cold snap happens, people flood in. All of a sudden, it's pumpkin lattes, and it's pumpkin spice deodorant, and it's uh, pumpkin spice beers. And so then they'll start flying out of there. So even though they're on the shelves now and people want to scoff at them, don't pass them up. Buy them. Just don't drink them. That's what the Oktoberfests are for. 
I was going to say, it's kind of weird right now where, you know, we're in Kentucky, it's 90 degrees, been that way last couple of days. I think it's that way for the next few days anyway. It's kind of hard to want that stoutier beer yet. I know even like last night, my wife was like, I don't want anything too, too heavy because it's, you know, it's summer. It's still summer temperature wise. Uh, so I can totally understand people being a little hesitant. But as we, we've talked many times, just because you think of Oktoberfest or, or, you know, a fall type beer will be out in the fall. The way that they do things, they'll be on to the winter beers before you know it, and you won't be able to find any of those uh, pumpkin ales anymore. Um, now, last year, we talked a little bit about, you know, the Oktoberfest, Marzins, how they kind of came about traditionally. I don't know if I want to go all the way back in because people can go back to that episode, but for those that missed it or, or might just not been listening to the podcast then, can you talk a little bit about those, uh, what an Oktoberfest is and, and what a Marzin is? Because those are the two of the traditional uh, beers we see right now. Yeah, the interesting thing is Marzins and Oktoberfest, you see those terms hyphenated um, because of the same beer. There's the same recipe. They're brewed at different times of the calendar, though. The end of the brewing season is usually whenever they'll make a Marzin. When I say end of the brewing season, it usually refers to summer. Summer's the period where, um, I'm sorry, summer's the period where the grains grow. And at the end of the harvest season, you see a surplus in grains. And that's when they'll brew a big batch of beer and let them lager through the winter and drink them in the spring. Uh, sometime in March, and that's Marzen in German, that's whenever their spring festivals begin. So that's Marzen. Coincidentally, the brewing season lasts from fall through winter and into spring. And so at the end of the brewing season in the spring, they'll make another big batch of the same beer. They'll age it through summer in the caves and cellars and let them age out properly so they can drink them in the fall. And that's your Oktoberfest beers. And um, so most people are recognize the Oktoberfest more so because everybody loves the celebrations in Munich, um, the smaller festivals in, in March, you know, people don't celebrate those worldwide quite as much, but in Germany they do. But uh, we always think about the bratwurst and the lederhosen, the oompa bands, and all those sort of things as being a little bit more traditional in the fall. So these flavors are actually around more of the year than you think. Um, that's one reason why I think people are eager to get into Oktoberfest beers now is because they're kind of a familiar, drinkable lager, even though they're very malt-centric. Uh, they're not very hoppy. Um, but they're still light. They're still crisp. They're dry. They're refreshing when done, when they're done properly. Not pe- think people can drink those most of the time of the year. Well, and, and you know, we were talking before for the show just about how how things change every year. You just never know exactly what what's going to be um, tickling everyone's fancy, so to speak. So, what are you? What trends are you seeing with fall beers this year? And you know, it seems like more and more especially with the weather being as it is you know sour summer beers are sticking around a little longer um so what, what are you seeing with 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 uh, the fall beers uh, nowadays yeah when it comes to the fall beers you know people kind of want to get into a fall feel but global global warming is ruining that for them what's happening is keeping things hotter into the fall so the people that are tired of the sours and tired of the hoppy well i got some bad news for you those are sticking around because it is hot. I remember last year, our hottest spell of the summer actually came in September. It was over 100 degrees for a few days. And yeah, it was very weird seeing pumpkin nails and you know, some of these other big stouts and big porters and barley wines and quads on the shelves when people are still kind of wanting those summer beers because it was so hot. But though, I mean, I'm a fall fan. I love the fall. So I can't wait for a cold snap to happen. I can't wait till football comes around and, and I can't wait to all those fall flavors. I'm ready to put on a few pounds and wear my baggy shirts and, and uh, eat some good food and drink some maltier beers. Um, but they're coming out. They're coming out slowly. But the problem is, is the customer's not ready for it yet. If you're a little bit more north, 
uh, say in the Wisconsin, Minnesota, New York areas, um, maybe you're ready. Maybe you're ready for those flavors. But if you're a little bit more in the middle of America, if you're a little bit more south of here, um, those beers are just going to have to sit and wait just a little bit longer. Now, the thing I am seeing since last year, the common notion was that people wanted something a little bit more familiar in taste because of the pandemic. This year, brewers have gotten back onto those experimental trains again. So you do see a little bit more of the pastry stouts and the milkshake IPAs and some of those heavier kind of flavors uh, you know, coming about again. I think brewers are getting experimental again. I think they're reaching out again because they recognize that the market is favorable, that there is uh, everybody got that stimulus check they held on to and they're just waiting on fall beers. And so brewers are trying to claim all that gas for them. I don't think there's a lot of that stimulus money left. <laughs> if someone has good on them for being uh, frugal and, and smart. Uh, but but I, I do find it interesting too, because you, you talked a little bit about this at the beginning. You know, just because something says Oktoberfest, that doesn't mean they're all the exact same style of beer. It's just what a lot of people will call their fall beers. So what, what are you seeing as far as what people are going to as far as that type of beer? Are they going to the traditional old school names? Or are they going more to the newer newer versions, pumpkin ales, things like that? What are you seeing in, in that realm? Well, so far, it's the more classic German varieties that I see really selling better right now. Um, people don't mind drinking the lo local uh, Oktoberfest and maybe some other little bit more regional, um, even national brands. But I think that the uh, people kind of gone back to basics whenever it comes to if I think Oktoberfest, then I want German made beer. I want it to come from Bavaria or I want it to come from someplace in Germany. And I think the trend there is such that the German varieties really do taste a little bit more like a lager even though they can be made with Vienna malts and maybe a touch of Munich malts and have a little bit more of a maltier taste. And what's happened, I think people recognize that the American varieties sometimes are made with ingredients that a lot of those brewers already have on hand. And so the beers end up becoming a little bit more malty, a little bit more rich. Uh, they kind of lose that classic dryness drinkability a little bit. The good news is the American versions usually have more flavor. The bad news is you lose drinkability. There's always this trade-off. And so I think right now people are preferring the drinkability or the refreshment value of traditional Munich-made uh, Oktoberfest, and they're waiting on the American ones. Uh, sometimes the American versions can have a tendency to go a little bit more toward a very lowly hopped amber ale flavor, even though they're brewed like a lager. Well, and to obviously, as temperatures might eventually drop a little bit, you're going to see some darker beers uh, hit hit the shelves or you know be be on draft. What what are some other styles that people can expect to see? Are we seeing more dark lagers, dark dark ales, saisons, things like that, or, or what's going to be on tap? Okay, so the used to be a day when we had several different types of, for instance, the stout categories. It used to be we had a dry stout and export stouts, a foreign dry stout. Uh, you'd have an oatmeal stout, and then you'd have an imperial stout. Now we just skip over all that stuff, and as soon as we're done with sour ales, boom, it's pastry stouts, 14% alcohol. <laughs> I mean, we're bourbon barrel aging them. There's vanilla, there's chocolate, there's kumquats, there's kerosene, there's razor blades. They put everything in these beers. And so I think what we're seeing is a very harsh transition from something that's very summery to something that's very wintry. And we're kind of skipping over fall a little bit. And uh, I think that brewers sometimes get ahead of themselves just a touch, but you know what? The customer's happy to go there with them. Um, but I think pastry stouts, I'm already seeing some evidence that they're on the horizon. They're starting to come into the market a little bit more and they're big, rich, heavy beers. And whenever it comes to those fall beers, winter beers now, since they are trending, 
you know, if you're going to make a brown ale like Founders does, let's make a 10% brown ale or one that pushes 10%. Let's put hazelnut coffee and rage up bourbon barrels and do all this special treatment to it. They're fantastic beers, but even though it's a brown ale, which is, oh, that's nice, it's a brown ale. It, I mean, it's a palate beater, so it's going to be up on your face buds a little bit because it's so strong. You know, it's a smooth beer, it's a nice beer, but easing into that, uh, that fall season with something a little bit more tame, like a normal 5% porter, like 5% brown ale, that just doesn't happen. And so the good news is there's a ton of culinary art on the shelves uh, for beer anymore. The bad news is, is there's just not a ton of drinkability when you start looking at those fall flavors. Yeah, it, it's always interesting because like you said, there, there's that weird season and anymore you almost go from summer to winter. Uh, it seems like now in Kentucky, you could have that all in one week. You could have summer, spring, fall and winter in one week. Uh, but but, you know, it, it does seem like it's very interesting on how quickly and how harshly uh, things can change. Now, uh, for, for you all, you know, we, we talk about this, you know, how do you balance the getting these fall beers when it's 90 degrees out and and kind of also still trying to hold on to the last of the summer stock, so to speak, and, and balance that at a, at a store where, you know, like we said, it's 90 degrees out. Not everyone wants a super hearty beer at the moment. Yeah, like for instance, we've carved out some space in our coolers where people can see what's available in the bottle to drink on site. And we have pumpkin ales and Oktoberfest, and they're like, so where's all your sours? Last time I came in, it was two weeks ago, and we saw all these sours. I'm like, yeah, well, we don't have those. We got these. And so, you know, distributors, you know, and brewers, you know, when they make these, you know, they start uh, dropping some other brands. And so they said, well, I made, you know, this uh, sour ale or maybe this really uh, this sessionable IPA uh, a couple of months ago, but now we're making these beers. And so the good news is beers do sell quite fast. So it leaves a lot of space in those coolers. Bad news, you have to put something in there. And right now, a lot of what the distributors and brewers have released are these fall flavored beers. Um, so I think that there is a little bit of a notion. Well, let me just get like a Dell's Pale Ale. Let me do a two-hearted L. Urban Artifact always has a sour out there that seems mm. to please people. And uh, so I think people just go to those old stalwarts a little bit more until the weather snaps. Then, you know, bring on the pumpkin, bring on the October Prince, <laughs> bring on the Tumquats kerosene and razor blade stout, you know. Yeah, they get they get very hardy and people you really need to pay attention to what the ABV is because uh, you might be shocked uh, uh, these days. Um, I, I guess uh, another thing that I always like to ask you is because you're, you're seeing it, you know, you see new new breweries that are either new to the markets or just are kind of all of a sudden coming back to, to life and people are taking them off the shelves. So what are some breweries or beers that, that you've been enjoying or that people should be on the lookout for these days? Sure. Um... There's not been a ton. I thought that there for a bit that we were going to see a few more new breweries really flood the market pretty heavily because it's been a long time since Lexington has opened a new brewery. And I think many people here in the Lexington area, they they see the market as being somewhat saturated with beer. But that's not how outsiders see this market. People from the outside, they see a very strong craft beer community and they see it being undervalued in terms of how many breweries we have. So it's an attractive market for breweries who want to come in. So I think the trend was as soon as the restrictions lift, as soon as people, the communities were getting healthier to see more brands into the market, but we've not, that's been really slow. And I think the reason for that is staffing issues. It's hard to staff. So if you can't put a rep from a brewery that's outside this market, if you can't put them into this market and have them to introduce the brands to the consumer and to retailers like us, then, you know, it's going to be harder to get a foothold. Um, and I think that a lot of those breweries have, you know, they've kind of run into some stumbling blocks. And so they're a little slower to come into the market. 
So for us, the new guys are still guys like the Urban Artifact, with, which has been with us for over a year now. And, you know, now that there's been some shakeup in the import world where Shelton Brothers as an importer and distributor has dissolved, they're reorganizing. They'll probably make a headway at some point soon. But it's a lot for some other smaller uh, distributors and importers to kind of claim some of those brands or even uh, pick up some new brands from breweries that kind of want to spread out a little bit. So we're really excited about what they can do. Um, and But we haven't seen that much of... Of, of that movement yet. And so I think it's just really hard to, to kind of find the vehicles, to find the staffing, to, to create a business model right now. The opportunity's there because there's voids in the market, but it's hard because the individual responsibility of having to create a business is really hard. It's challenging when resources and staffing is so slim. Uh, yeah, now is a very difficult time for any business, whether you're established or, or new to be, to just to, to function in general, let alone try to expand footprints and, and things like that. Although I know Highwire's uh, opened up in uh, Louisville location. Uh, I think Goodwood has expanded into Indianapolis, things like that. So you, we are seeing it. It's just maybe not as uh, fast as we had seen it before. All right. And before I let you go, uh, you know, now that I've gotten to know a lot of the, the people in the industry, especially here in Kentucky and, and just learning a whole lot, uh, one name that's come, come up recently is Scott Hand. Uh, he's in the hospital right now. Can you talk a little bit about his legacy and his impact uh, on Kentucky beer and the Kentucky beer industry? It's huge. Uh, me and Scott go way back. We met on a chat on Beer Advocate. It was either in 2003 and 2004. He was a landscaper. And, but he was making some exceptional homebrews on his own without the influence of any clubs or any friends to share that interest with him. Uh, he started coming to the homebrew club meetings here in Lexington. We call it Bach Brewers of Central Kentucky. Uh, very quickly become really popular because he made really good beers. And everybody wants to be <laughs> friends with people to make good beers. Um, he became president of the club. And I was happy enough to be a treasurer at the same time. Um, wasn't long after that, you know, we were both looking for work. We both interviewed for Alltech, the Lexington Brewing Company, uh, an assistant brewer position. Uh, we both wanted that job. I think he wanted a little bit more. He won the job. I did not get that job. Um, but he was a talented brewer. While he was there, he trained um, several, maybe countless amount of other brewers uh, who came up through the ranks of Alltech and went on to create other breweries. Of course, he split off and you know, become partners with Brian Holton. And they moved to Louisville, created Monic, uh, the brand. Um, and so that's where people know him most from. Uh, it's the biggest city in Louisville, and they were a very popular brewery situated right there in the Germantown area. They created a gastropub with a German flair. And those are two combinations that's really hard to pull off, but they pulled it off from a culinary arts point of view. And Scott, in charge of the beer, I think did a phenomenal job with that. Um, Scott always preferred the more traditional beers, the English mild ales, the Belgian you know, triples, Belgian pels, saisons. Uh, he would do experimental beers, but that wasn't what he wanted to do the most. He really did love history. Um, a lot of folks who are watching this, though, if they knew Scott, um, you felt like you, you were his best friend. He treated you that way. He, he really kind of pulled you into his world very seamlessly, very easily. And he made you feel very warm and comfortable about being in his presence immediately. Soft-spoken, somewhat cynical, um, but always laughing, always jovial. Um, there's no way you can be around Scott without, number one, being calm, and number two, laughing a lot. He's going to make you laugh a lot. But, uh, you know, he's left a really fantastic legacy uh, on the beer scene in, in Kentucky. And um, I remember a couple of years ago, 
I took my family to Ethereal Brewing Company and it was on New Year's Eve. And so there's not many people there as early in the evening, four or five o'clock. And so I walk in and there's two people sitting at the bar. It was Scott and Melinda, uh, his girlfriend. And uh, so we took my family over and said, and Kelly was bartending and we were just yelling across the bar, nonsense stuff. I was eating pizza with my family. We we're all just laughing and carrying on and just having a good time. Not really talk about anything, just enjoying being in each other's presence. And that was, that's what Scott did. He just brought you in. Okay. So if you didn't know Scott, you might as well say you did. Because <laughs> he has this, such a genuine humanity about him. Uh, one of the reasons why it's so bothersome when you hear the news of Scott is because you look at him and he, you, you see the humanity in you. He reminds you of the genuine character that you wish shined in you a little bit more, that shined a little heavier. And so he's very aspirational. He's definitely someone who I've always looked up to in the beer world and as a friend, and I always will. And currently, as of this recording, you know, right, right when we recorded this this week, uh, Scott is currently in the hospital. News is not great. We are wishing him, his, his girlfriend, his family, uh, all the best, and I know so many people have talked about him and what he's meant to to him. I've seen that all, all across social media uh, in the last few few days, and it's amazing to see how far and wide uh, the connections back to him go. Because I feel like he's probably touched, uh, or someone can trace their roots back to him somehow, some way. Uh, just his impact on on the Kentucky brewing scene, and uh, like we said, we we wish him and his family uh, uh, sending lots of prayers their way right now. We definitely will. Keep his uh, family and his girlfriend in your thoughts and prayers. And Kevin, I appreciate it as always to talk beer, beer trends, and of course to talk about Scott Hand and his amazing legacy uh, that he's had on the Kentucky beer world. I appreciate it as always. My pleasure, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. All right, now it's time to switch from all things hoppy and talking Oktoberfest and fall beers. And now we're going into the fall cocktails. We have once again with us Jake Sullick, Beverage Director at West Main Crafting Co. in Lexington, Kentucky. Jake, as always, thanks for joining us. Of course, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. I, I, I do appreciate it. And, you know, we talked to Kevin a little bit uh, before here on the podcast about beers and how some some interesting things are happening for, for what people are thinking about for fall. Um, you know, fall beers is not exactly what you would imagine. Uh, with that said, what can people imagine when they see uh, fall cocktails start to hit the menus, which I know it's only August, but we're starting to yeah. see that transition, I'm sure. Yeah, depending on the weather, you know, you start to get some chilly nights in September, so people start transitioning over to new cocktail menus right around this time. I think the biggest thing you can expect is going to be a change in the produce. We start getting into apple season, not just fresh apples, but you'll see cocktails made with apple cider vinegar, uh, traditional soft or hard apple cider. And then I think we start getting into more baking spice-based flavors. You start seeing cinnamon syrup, vanilla syrup, um, nutmeg starts to become a garnish on a lot of cocktails. You start just moving into richer, more aromatic ingredients. And, and I was going to say, I mean, do, is, is there kind of a trend, too, though, to have this weird crossover? Because, I mean, you know, here in Lexington, you know, today as we're talking, it's 90, deg 90 degrees. I mean, are we still going to see some of those, quote unquote, summery cocktails into fall, maybe a little later nowadays, especially as it, if it's still a very balmy day? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's especially true with Kentucky. The food and beverage scene here kind of oscillates between the two Keenlands. Mm -hmm. and if you have a Keeneland where it's a nice and sunny October, you're going to want a lot of cooling summertime drinks. But if we get a, a fall Keeneland where it's snowing every day, 
then you'll see us transition a little bit faster into the warmer and hot drinks. So it just kind of depends on, on what the weather's doing here. And, and now for you all, you know, back in the spring, we talked to you about um, how you guys transition your menu and it takes you about about a year or six months to kind of get it all right because you guys are sourcing your ingredients it's not like you're just coming up with new ideas you got to figure out how to source them yes um is it that time now to start the the switch to the fall and, and winter menu as well yeah we're kind of in that research and development phase right now kind of looking at a lot of the long tall sparkling drinks which are Great for summertime, great for sitting out on a patio, great for when you need a, a, a refreshing drink when you've been out in the sun all day. We're starting to transition over into doing hot beverages. So even though it's still 90 degrees out today, we'll be thinking about what it's like to do a hot toddy or a hot buttered rum, some really classic warming beverages. So we're just kind of in that menu development cycle where we're figuring out what we need to take off the menu and then what new things are going to need to go on. And how does that work work for you all? Because like we, we've talked, I mean, the seasons can be crazy here and really almost anywhere now. I swear you just never know what, you, what you're going to get yeah. day to day. Um, how, how difficult is it to find that balancing act to, to transition? You know, because like you said, produce is changing. So you're not going to have as much of the berries and things like that. You're going to have more of the apples and, and, you know, even pumpkin and spices coming coming on board now. How, how difficult is that for you all to kind of figure out when it is time to, you know, flip the switch and go? We do it a little bit based on experience and what we know vendors have, what our purveyors are offering, um, kind of keeping a close relationship with local farmers. But at a certain point, you're guessing. Um, you can be as confident as you are, but this is, this is Kentucky. And, you know, like we joked earlier, you're going to have October and it's going to be 78 degrees and hot, and the next day it's going to be 35 degrees and snowing. Mm-hmm. So we'll pick a we'll pick a time and a place where we think that we're pretty comfortable that it's time to switch over to fall and winter drinks. But you can never be 100 percent sure. There will always be always be a few outlier days where your menu seems really inappropriate for the weather that's outside. Now you know we, we've also talked here not just for, for for what you guys are making, but we you you've given us some great tips. Uh, still hasn't helped me. I'm, I, I, although I'm getting better, but sometimes it just doesn't doesn't come out. Uh, so, so with that said, for for those that are doing some stuff at home, what are some common mistakes they can that they make, and how can they avoid those common mistakes? Probably the most common for somebody making cocktails at home is going to be what kind of ice you're using. And we take it for granted when we're making cocktails uh, that ice is just a given. But when you're using ice that just comes out of a refrigerator, it, A, may have been sitting there for a while, so it's, it's gathered up a lot of freezer smells that are going to make mm-hmm. your cocktail taste weird. Uh, and B, it, it could be a, a really weird shape. When, when you go to a, a good cocktail bar, they're going to have good quality ice. And you don't want any of the small, really chipped ice because it's going to cause your drink to dilute too fast. So when you're at home, a good investment is getting online. You can go someplace as simple as Amazon. You don't have to go to a specialty site and get a really nice cube tray, preferably something that's like one by one by one perfect cubes. And you can get a tray for probably three or four dollars. Get one or two of those. That way, when you're stirring cocktails or shaking cocktails, you've always got perfectly equal full size cubes. We don't think about the math behind making a cocktail, but the finished product is actually between 25 and 30% water. So you want to make sure that that water is filtered and clean 
pure, doesn't smell weird or off in any way, and you want to make sure that it, you don't over-dilute the cocktail with too much of it. And so for the home mixologist, ice is really the key to keeping really good quality, consistent cocktails. And then for, for me, I tried the rum punch. I just I utterly failed at that <laughs> uh, this, this past time. Uh, but but I guess for me, what I got tricked up on was the you know the nursery rhyme was great, but for some reason I couldn't figure out parts, especially when you're talking about maybe using ounces and tablespoons or te- you know teaspoons. Sure. How how do you for those that want to you know kind of change things or they find a recipe that's in parts, um, how do you go about changing that to something that makes sense in other people's heads? You know whether it's ounces or tablespoons or something like that. Yes. Parts you'll find listed on a lot of recipes online just as a way to appease people using different measuring systems. People uh, are going to be using the metric system in the UK, so when, so if you want to be able to appease your whole audience, you'll just use parts. Parts don't mean anything. They're just a generic unit of measurement. A part could be anything. Here in the US, uh, bartenders typically use ounces for everything. So we'll express uh, a recipe as being half an ounce or one ounce. But when you think of it as parts, just substitute whatever unit of measurement you want for the part. So if it's a cocktail, and I say it's two parts, one part, one part, you could substitute ounces and just have two ounces, one ounce, or one ounce. But if you want to make that a large format drink, if you've got a couple friends coming over and maybe you want to do a pitcher of Manhattan, then you can simply substitute the part for cups. And you can do two cups, one cup, one cup. The key with using parts is just making sure that the ratio between each of the elements is the same. And when you do that, it doesn't matter whether you're using ounces or tablespoons, any unit of measurement will work. And I, and I guess that kind of also then works in the reverse. You see a big batch cocktail that you liked or had someplace and you want to scale it down for a single use. You just, as long as you divide it by the correct number yeah. uh, for all of them, you'll, you'll be okay too, I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. You can just divide one of those recipes by four or divide it by eight. Uh, when you do that, sometimes you'll run into a problem where it's a really weird measurement, you know, like a third of an ounce, which you may have to get a special jigger or, or break out some measuring spoons in order to do that. But yeah, you just d- divide it by a multiplier. And then for those that want to, you know, kind of, you know, do some, some things at home, uh, what's a good home recipe for the fall that makes, you know, just for maybe that I'm, I'm coming home for and trying tonight? Uh, what, what's a good single-use recipe? For this time of year, as we start to get into fall cocktails, I start pulling out my Amaro collection more and more. Uh, and and Amaro is, uh, can be made anywhere. We typically think of them as Italian because it's an Italian word. It means bitter. Uh, they're liqueurs, so they're made with sugar, but they have some sort of bittering agent, so they're simultaneously sweet and bitter. Uh, some of the more recognizable brands are going to be Campari, Aperol, Ramazzotti. Uh, you see them in the liqueur section on most liquor store shelves. Yeah. They're perfect for fall and winter. Um, they're great for cocktails. And I think one of my favorite uses is in a little cocktail called the Boulevardier. You can think of it as a, a more bitter relative to the Manhattan, but it is a basic recipe for it is going to be one part sweet vermouth, one part Campari, and then two parts bourbon. Uh, a lot of people like to Im- imagine it as, a, as a, a relative of the Negroni, which is a similar mm-hmm. cocktail made with Campari and, and, and gin. But as long as you keep that ratio of two parts to one part to one part, you're gonna make a delicious cocktail. 
I like that. See, I might be able to do that one. I might <laughs> be able to do that one. You, you've, you've made it a little, little more simple for me. Uh, but now, obviously, you know, COVID's still going on. We got to be careful. But we're yes. still people are still having gatherings, and, and if they're being responsible, that that is quite okay. But maybe someone wants to have a large cocktail. A batch cocktail, whether they're taking it someplace or, or having some friends over, maybe they're getting ready for football season as well. What, what's something that they can make uh, on a larger scale uh, that, that'll work well for, for a large group? I think sticking uh, with the cocktail, I was just talking about Negroni is the way to do this. It's really easy to make a pitcher of iced Negroni for your friends. And the traditional Negroni recipe is one part sweet vermouth, one part Campari, and one part gin. I like a little bit more gin in mine. It's up to you, especially as it gets colder out. I like a little bit more gin. Um, adds a little bit more of a backbone, a little bit more of a warming element to the drink. But doing this in a pitcher is really easy. Again, you can do it by parts. So if you wanna have a bunch of friends over, just think of it as one to one to one. So you could add one cup to one cup to one cup, and that's gonna give you 24 ounces. You'll go ahead and fill that pitcher up full of ice, Stir it for probably 30 to 60 seconds, get it nice and ice cold, and then you'll be able to serve it in individual glasses for all of your friends. That's probably going to get you about six to eight cocktails. And, and does it matter which gin you use, a dry gin or, or just kind of the, the, the kind of normal gin, I guess, I guess you could call it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, does it, does it matter, or I guess it's maybe just this taste that, that you're, you're looking for? I would always stick with a, a gin that you like to start with. But a heartier gin is probably the way to go. Uh, a London Dry gin, I think some of your classics here like Plymouth or Tangeray or Beefeater, and that can turn some people off at first. But with uh, Negroni, because you're already using a lot of really big flavors, Campari and Sweet Vermouth are both very sweet and very bitter. They've got a lot of herbaceous qualities to them. By taking a really hearty gin, it'll help stand up to all those flavors. And then you kind of get this magical balance between all of the elements. So I, I would, I would go big on the gin. I, I, I like that. I like that. And then, you know, for, for us here at, at hops and spirits, we're, we're getting into whiskey weeks cause you know, September is national bourbon heritage month here in, in America. Um, you and I have talked a lot about this, about making your own simple syrups, things like that. How can someone make a proper old fashioned at home all by themselves, whether it's making, including making this, the syrup, just just the whole the whole nine yards easiest cocktail to make amongst all the classics i think it's been adulterated a lot throughout its 200 plus year history and so we forget that it was a cocktail made in a much much simpler time mm -hmm. uh, we, we know that the the original whiskey cocktail which we now call the old-fashioned goes all the way back to probably the 1790s or before that it appears in print in 1806 so we've been making this drink for a long time just a simplest, few years. <laughs> yeah. Simplest way to do it is to imagine it as you're going to take a lot of this really great tasting base whiskey and just make it a little bit easier to sip on its own. So we're just going to be slightly modifying it. So you'll want to do a really nice two to one simple syrup. Uh, simple syrups typically are one part sugar and one part water. Doing this for home, do two parts sugar to one part water. That's going to concentrate your syrup. It's going to give you a little bit more sugar in there, and that's important for the final product. We want it to have a little bit more sweetness in there. So go ahead and cook that ahead of time. For the actual cocktail itself, you're just going to need two dashes of bitters, um, 
any sort of orange or aromatic bitter would, will work. I think Angostura uh, has been grandfathered in, and you'll see even see find that be able to find that in grocery stores. It's one of the most common aromatic bitters. Aromatic orange bitters, just a couple dashes into a tin. Take that simple syrup that you've just made, which is a little bit more concentrated in sugar, and just put a quarter ounce in. Very, very, very small amount. And that's because we did a two to one simple syrup, it's gonna have the same amount of sugar as a teaspoon, which is kind of the sweet spot that we're going for, just that much sugar. Then you add two ounces of a base spirit. Um, any of your favorite American whiskeys will work. Ice the tin and go ahead and stir it for about 30 to 40 seconds and then strain it off in a glass. I like to finish bourbon off with an orange twist. Uh, for rye cocktails, I really like lemon. I think it teases out a lot of the herbaceous flavors in there. But that's it. That is the perfect old-fashioned. It's as classic as they get. And, and, and I love, too, that you can do everything really at home. And, and on the simple syrup, you're just doing that on a pan on, on the on the stove stovetop? Yeah, just bring it to a, a very quick boil. As soon as all the sugar's been dissolved, kill the heat, and just let it come back down to temperature. Uh, it'll refrigerate for several weeks. Uh, a nice little trick, though, if you happen to have some 100-proof vodka lying around, just put a shot of vodka in it, and by adding the alcohol, that'll ensure that no bacteria develops, and so you can actually keep it in the refrigerator for several months. I, I, I love it. See, the more you know, I feel like I should just get that across, across the screen right now for those watching and not listening. And, and then, Jake, my, my last thing is any other tips for folks for this fall or anything they need to watch out for? You know, we always like to say, hey, be, be careful of some, some things. Uh, what, what's a good tip for, for them this fall? I think learn to, if you haven't already uh, embraced bitterness, learn, learn to embrace it. The way that the industry is going, we're, we're receiving a lot more bitter ingredients from all over the world. Uh, it can be intimidating when you go into a liquor store. There are a lot more labels available than there were five, ten years ago. Mm -hmm. Embrace bitterness. Embrace some of the weirder flavors that are out there. They make terrific cocktails. Uh, and and once, you get, once you enjoy Aperol, then you'll learn to enjoy Campari, and then you can start to enjoy some of the weirder bottles that are out there. And that'll open you up to a whole new world of cocktails. Well, well, Jake, I, I appreciate it as always, and I guarantee you I can at least make a couple of those because if they're just legit one part to one part to one part, I think I can handle that very well. Um, you won't be able I, to mess it up. I, I, I thought that last time, and I shocked <laughs> myself on, on it as well. But but I am getting better, and I, and I appreciate all, all, all the help that you've given, not just me, but our listeners. Of course. Thanks for having me on. Uh, absolutely jake and remember uh you can check out any of our past episodes with jake or any of all just all of our episodes uh, find us uh, on any of your favorite podcast players we're on youtube facebook uh, or you can go to our website hopspirits.com uh, jake as always thanks thanks jonathan <laughs>